Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hello, I am Chris Dyerwald. And I'm Eliana Johnson. And welcome to L. Inkstained Retros, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, greetings on a chilly day in the District of Columbia. I hope that wherever you are recording this, you are safely, warmly ensconced indoors and feeling cozy vibes. I am toasty warm and hope all of our listeners too, so that I can beseech them to please leave us a review (laughs) if you enjoy this podcast. Get cozied up by your fire and pour yourself some hot apple cider spiked and leave us a review. Okay. Uh, Chris. Yes. How was Iowa? Uh, Iowa's good. It's still there. It remains Iowa. I am glad to be back. Uh, I've, I've taken the, I've taken the, the choice this cycle, uh, of actually, it's a little harder to actually come back. If you just go straight to New Hampshire, you can basically get a day off, send your laundry out, re-rack and start again. But I missed my people. I missed my people, so and I wanted to be wretch available, so I'm glad I'm doing it this way. Chris, before we get to the front page, we have big Steyerwalt news. No, no, no. I got the following email in my inbox this morning. News Nation to debut a new Sunday public affairs program, The Hill Sunday with Chris Steyerwalt. News Nation, America's fastest growing cable news network, today announced the launch of a new Sunday public affairs program called The Hill Sunday with Chris Starwalt on Sunday, March 3rd at 10 a.m. Eastern. Every Sunday, the program will feature a variety of politicians and newsmakers discussing the latest political news from the nation's capital. The program will also feature a panel of guest commentators offering insight and analysis of the week's key stories. Chris, could not be more excited. Congratulations. And so well-deserved. Everybody, set your DVRs now. And we will, of course, remind you um, before Sunday, March 3rd. But woohoo! Well, thank you. And I hope you're ready to clear some time on your Sunday morning schedule because I think you would be such a great panelist. Um, Because, you know, we want to put together... I I want the show to be... One part, uh, uh, last week, this week, tonight, or last week, tonight, I want it to be one part firing line with Bill Buckley and one part the McLaughlin group. <laughs> so, um, and, and just a word about Sunday shows. We've talked about the idea that Sunday shows, the, the premise of Sunday shows, public affairs programming, dated from a time when there wasn't much public affairs programming and there wasn't much politics on TV. Um, and so it's just an, right. And in, in, in one important sense, it's just another hour of news and politics on TV in a world that has 24 hours of news and politics. On the other hand, it is also true 
that it's uh, a weird little time of the viewing week, right? Where you have a different kind of audience and there is a different expectation uh, for what kind of content will be on. And I'm just really happy that News Nation wants to do something weird and boring with me. Uh, and hopefully it will be uh, interesting and hopefully useful to somebody. I really can't wait to watch. Well, we'll we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. well as I as I've said many I've been privileged in many ways in my career and as I've said each time it's great as long as I don't blank it up. So, we'll try to not blank it up. I am not worried at all about that. We'll see. Well, let's talk about the coverage. Um there was an amazing New York Times piece headline. This again in frozen Iowa, the press corps ponders a slog of a campaign. Snowstorms, a thinning field of candidates, and Donald Trump's polling lead contributed to a smaller media turnout for the nation's first caucus because, of course, it was absolutely freezing in Iowa. And so the Times writes, the number of credentialed journalists fell to 1,200 from 2,600 four years ago. Some big name TV stars stayed home. The lobby bar of the Des Moines Marriott downtown, once a buzzing, gossip-soaked node of Washington and Manhattan-based reporters, anchors, and operatives, was a ghost town late Saturday. The attenuated vibe was best summed up by a t-shirt on sale in the hotel gift shop. Election 2024. Welp, I guess we're doing this again. The conceit of this piece that basically you should only do your job if it's fun was so amusing to me. Um, I want to be I want to be measured and cautious here um, because nobody cares about my like whatever. The, uh, I uh, as I have often as I used to say, uh, I'm not working in a coal mine and I'm not in Afghanistan. Uh, I know people who I grew up with and around who had to do both. And this is an easy job. Uh, but this was a specially challenging. I had to fly into your hometown after two days of <laughs> after two days of trying to get there. I had to fly into Minneapolis, rent a car, drive down. They shut down the interstate. I had to spend the night in Clear Lake, Iowa, which looked like the ice planet Hoth from uh, Star Wars. And it was a little rugged. It was also with the wind chill 40 below. Um, though I do love, I love the Iowans as I go out on Saturday morning, I'm like, I got to try to find some people, but first I need to get gas and here are all these guys out there, your people, no hats on, no gloves on pumping gas, talking about like ice fishing and, <laughs> uh, okay. Like, all right. And one dude even said, he said the magic phrase, cold enough for you. And I was like, you people are wild. You all are wild. Uh, but anyway, the low turnout, uh, I did a, a survey of journalists. Yes. Yeah, so let's let's just tell people it was down to 120,000 in 2024 from 170,000. Did they get to 120,000? I, I think it was. Yes, I, be I believe it was. Nate Moore, what's the You want to double check? We want the final numbers because this matters for my... This matters for my for my bets, um, but the the check I, me, Nate. One ten. Now I assume all the they haven't all been counted yet. Um, Thank you, Nate, for the live fact check. But the turnout 
in 2016 was 170. Yeah, one higher than that. Um, and uh, so this returned to where it used to be for Republicans, much lower. Um, and that that was the norm 2008, 2012. Uh, 2000, uh, in 2000, it was like under 100,000 or it was about 100,000 or whatever. But anyway, there's reasons for that. They include the weather, but it's not just the weather. And I think this piece, there's the... the the, the self-regard, the dripping self-regard of the piece, some of it tongue-in-cheek, uh, is a little goofy, but it's a scene piece. Um, but I think for the political turnout and the media turnout, it's not just that it was cold. It's that there wasn't much going on, right? I wanted right, a race. Right, the results were sort of foreordained. Yeah, I wanted a race. I always want a race. I want a race to cover. Uh, I don't think Republicans wanted a race. I don't think they were interested and turnout was low, uh, but not crazy. And the weather was a depressant, but so was the fact that, and look, I don't think the Democrats are ever coming back to Iowa. Part of what uh, the unanchored statistic on in this piece about the number of credentialed journalists is what was going on. Uh, there was a democratic contest too, right? Uh, there was a, an open Democratic seat, and and in 2016 there were both. Right, both parties had open seats, and there was all this attention. The Democrats have left Iowa; they're not coming back. Um, I can see some scenario in the future where the Iowa Democratic Party tries to get a little something going. But frankly, I think Iowa Democrats are relieved after the embarrassments that they've suffered in trying to tabulate their votes and do all their stuff. I think they're kind of Relieved that it's over. And so the Iowa Republican Party, I don't think wanted big turnout. Um, they held it on the on the Monday night of a three day weekend. Not exactly prime time. Ma major football games going on. Major football games going on. I don't think they were trying to maximize turnout. And I think we're just I think the shift in the calendar away from Iowa, uh, Republicans will probably continue to do a straw poll and I, I think what happens with Iowa is this. It's a good place for insurgents to try to get a foothold. The largest ever turnout for Iowa caucuses were Democrats in 2008 because Barack Obama saw an, a, in a neighboring state, he saw an opportunity and he went all in on Iowa and it became a whole sensation as Hillary Clinton and John Edwards tried to battle it back and blah, 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 blah. Maybe something like that happens again in the future, but I just don't think I don't think there's much I don't think there's much sizzle. And I, I say that sadly because I like going to Iowa. I like the 801 Steakhouse. I like the people in Iowa and I like the ritual of getting and my favorite, by the way. Oh, my gosh, do I love the foreign press? Oh, my gosh. And I would be a goonie bird trying to go cover like, you know, a. Uh, a, a, a by-election in the, you know, in Okinawa. I would be a ridiculous creature trying to figure out how things work and whatever else. But here come these hundreds and hundreds of foreign press into frozen Iowa, basically. And their questions are wonderful because they're like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And looking for people to interview, it's just, it's to me very charming. Can we talk about the Associated Press call? I... 
was with NBC on Monday night. And oh, um, look at you. I hadn't even made it to the air before the race was called. Look at you um, hanging out with the fancy people. it was people. called, you know, five minutes after voting started. Yeah. So AP. And look, I, my, I thought right off the bat, you know, Look, we could they could have called the race for Trump in in the morning. Um, wasn't really any different from doing that. Everyone knew Trump was going to win this thing. And people went to cite, okay, the AP's own rules say you're not supposed to call races until voting ends and all that. And I thought the AP violating its own rules was sort of less important than it's just a bad look. Like let's let people vote. So um, a little uh, a little procedure here um, in Iowa, because it's a caucus, you can't do an exit poll. You have to do an entrance poll. And this was developed in the days before um, news alerts on everyone's cell phone that they're carrying their little hand computer. And the idea was people go into their caucus site and we ask them who they're going to vote for when they go in. And then they go in and the doors are closed. And so it's over, right? <clears throat> it's essentially over. The uh, News Nation with our partners, Decision Desk HQ, uh, called the race, um, not as soon as the AP, but did call the race while there were caucuses still going on. So I, I, I take ownership of some of that. Um, and most of the networks did too. And... Um, on the one hand, I find Ron DeSantis's arguments and victimhood totally. No, I un- totally agree with that. Well. <clears throat> totally unconvincing. It's a totally I unconvincing. T- uh, no one, no one believed. No reasonable man or woman believed that Ron DeSantis might win the Iowa caucuses. I I totally ab- agree with that. It's like somehow the outcome of this race matched all of the polling going in. It matched the Des Moines Register poll. Match the best polls. You know, I, I don't think the call skewed the outcome of the race. I, could, I just think I could it's, call, a, it's icky. I can call Oklahoma for the presidential election right now. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to make the call on Oklahoma. Now, we're not going to call Oklahoma today because the rules are you don't call a, a race while people are still voting. Then there are gray areas. If you call a race, and I have been part of doing this many times, if you call a race while some states are still voting, but you've called, so for example, in 2012, when uh, we, I was at Fox then, when we called Ohio and then Florida for Barack Obama, it was over, right? We were, we were telling everybody it's done. There were still people voting in Hawaii and Alaska, and I don't know, maybe in California at that time, I don't know. So sometimes- uh, there's, there is that gray area, but certainly you don't want to call an individual state while people in that state are still voting. Uh, if there are implications, larger implications, who's going to control the house, whatever else. I think there, I think you have some leeway there in the future. I think that news organizations have to remember if there are Iowa caucuses, um, we have to remember that people are getting news alerts, um, inside these caucus sites. And uh, I think finding a balance there uh, for this unusual event that only happens once every four years, 
finding a better policy for that is probably good, but it didn't cost Ron DeSantis anything. No, I totally agree with that. Like, it's not a good thing to do, but it did not skew the outcome of this race. But Ron DeSantis is a victim, Eliana. Don't you know? He's well, being, he's being victimized. First of all, you know, he 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 turned on Fox News and turned on Trump in the last couple of days before the caucuses saying, um, let's let's play the clip. He's got basically a Praetorian guard of, of, of the conservative media, uh, Fox News, um, you know, the, the websites, all the, this stuff. They just don't they don't hold them accountable because they're worried about losing viewers and they don't want to have the ratings go down. Uh, and, and that's just that's just the reality. That's just the truth. And I'm not complaining about it. Um, I'd rather that not be the case, but that's just, I think, an objective reality. So when you're wait, he just he just rehearsed the argument of my best selling book. They don't want to. And this isn't just true of Fox. This is true of everybody or m almost everybody, which is they don't want to tell people what they don't want to hear because they're afraid of losing their audience. And so they so welcome. Welcome to the club, Ron DeSantis. Join Join the broken news nation. I thought that DeSantis unloading this argument two days before the caucuses was indicative of the a problem with his campaign in that if you want to run on this, run on this. Christy did. Yeah. Um, but you don't unload a new message that's as true, that was as true at the beginning of the race as it was at the end of the race. Two days before Iowa, except, except for one thing, except for except one that thing, Fox changed. Yes. You know, Fox changed his tune on DeSantis, but Fox, the DNA of Fox, did not change. Right, he liked it when they were for him, and he didn't like it when they um, were against him. Right, but they're they're not holding him accountable. Uh, he complains. Were they holding you accountable when they were uh, nuzzling you? Uh, were they holding you accountable when you were on their air? over and over and over and over again for uncritical interviews. Come on, man. Like it, th this, is, this is, you cannot retreat to a demand for fairness and accountability uh, after you have built, after you built. And, and this is the other thing about Ron DeSantis. We talked here many times about a dubious media strategy that Ron DeSantis had during that period when Fox was backing him, which was, no interviews with news outlets, no critical interviews, uh, and in fact, a very intense war on the press, right? He had, a, he had a spokeswoman who was savage to people. It was, the whole point was, I don't need your dumb stuff. I'm going to go on uh, Twitter with Elon Musk to launch my campaign. I'm not dealing with the press. And it was very fitting that his campaign the uh, as a viable entity for the presidency ends with him embittered talking about how he doesn't get good coverage. What did you think was going to happen? You think you're going to roast the press and shove grapefruits in their face for two years? And then at the end, you're going to come on, man, grow up. I agree with every word of that. And Look, these guys have to run with the world as it is. Um, and if they want to make um, a tenant of their platform be, we got to change the conservative media ecosystem, make it that from the start. Right. And Trump, this is again, DeSantis doing a pale version of Trump, right? 
Uh, this is Trump has attacked Fox over and over. He attacks everybody. Of course, then he goes and sucks up to him. But he is uh, Trump is it's part of Trump's brand and Trump's victim status that everybody, all the media is against him. Can I also note with DeSantis, part of the problem with his campaign, and this is like a very inside baseball thing, is that he didn't befriend these anchors and reporters, which is like an important part of being a political candidate is greasing the sources and palling around with these guys. And like, it's, a, you know, you just have to do it. Right. You j you can't just expect them to cover you because you're running. You got to spend time. You got to put in the time with them behind the scenes. And instead, the people he had down um, to the governor's mansion in Florida were the sort of online weirdos, the Benny Johnsons and the Woof. Twitterati. Um, and this is uh, of a of a piece uh, with the overall uh, tone and tenor of the of the DeSantis campaign, which is massive arrogance at the beginning. Huge. We're going to everybody else needs to drop out of the race. I'm the only one. I'm the only one who can do this. Everybody shut up and go away. And then at the end, uh, bitterly complaining and now on a trajectory, basically, to try to deny Nikki to do in Iowa, to do in the rest of the country what he did in Iowa, which is to deny Nikki Haley a clean second place. But Nikki Haley's got allies. She's got help. Who does she have? Well, the Daily Mail of London is here to tell you. She's got Judith Scheinlin, Judge Judy who once was, I believe, the best paid person in television uh, and amazingly continues to be at, I don't, I don't know exactly how old uh, Judge Judy is, but continues to have a powerful presence uh, in the media. And uh, they had the scoop uh, with a, a letter of endorsement uh, for Nikki Haley from Judge Judith Scheinlin. Congratulations, Haley campaign. Chris, Mediaite reports that Trump called the New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman to rant about his cases, and it didn't go quite the way that he expected. Should we play the clip? Let's hear a little. I wrote a book about him. Do you have a rapport with him? Still, you seem to have had a rapport with him. Well, I covered him, and, you know, I dealt with him a lot as a subject who I covered. Uh, he was very angry about the book. Uh, I had a lot of reporting in it that mm -hmm. made him very upset, and he has continued to vent that upset. But the way he is is he will always engage with a reporter eventually if he sees some reason to. And so he called me the other day. Uh, for he the called first time you the other day? Yeah, for the first time in a long time. And I, and I wrote say what? He wanted to talk about these cases and these trials that he was going to, because I was writing a story about how, you know, politics and the courts were going to converge again in January. This was a couple weeks ago. And he called to say that he wanted to attend all of these trials and to talk, you know, again about his attacks on the judge and the civil case and to talk about Eugene Carroll, much of which I didn't report mm -hmm. on. But uh, but he, when he, he thinks he's his own best comms director mm -hmm. and his own best defender. And you'll see more of that, I suspect. One, one and we, we should, we should point out here, by the way, this was on <clears throat> your new favorite show, uh, which was King Charles, uh, <laughs> with, uh, Gail King and Charles Barkley. So there you go. Chris, you wanted to talk about the Trump campaign's well, turn I against 
Well, I, I, go ahead, I, go ahead. I, I think generally here what this is indicative of. So here you have Maggie Haberman on TV talking about Trump, calling her to complain about the coverage uh, that he's getting uh, in the in, in court, essentially, and, and to to jawbone about the race. So it's Trump coverage of Trump coverage of Trump coverage. Right. It's a, a Russian nesting doll. Of, <laughs> of Trump coverage. It's the coverage about the coverage about the coverage. And the what, what struck me here is as Nikki Haley is heading, was heading up to Iowa to like, or heading up to New Hampshire, we're going to get in the mix. We're going to get up here and do it. What was the big political news story of, we're recording this on Thursday. What was the big political news story on Wednesday? Donald Trump outside of a courtroom where he's gonna he he's daring a judge to throw him out, na 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 na, and the that was not my big political news story on Wednesday. Well, the amount of coverage that it got was robust. Uh, it was robust. There were other obvious more obviously more important political news stories going on with uh, here in Washington as they're trying to sort out a deal that they're not going to get to. Um, as all, there's a bunch of other more important things going on. But the video of Donald Trump with his flock of seagulls hair standing in front of a bank of American flags to talk about why he should be allowed in open court to harangue uh, the plaintiff in a case he lost was irresistible TV, right? It was just irresistible. And it, just to repeat the obvious, to, to deepen Ron DeSantis's point, it does for siloed audiences, it does, it does for siloed audiences on the left and the right exactly what it wants. On one side, you can do, can you believe the hubris, the arrogance, the da-da-da-da, Trump in more trouble, Trump's in more trouble. Our panel joins us now to talk about Trump's trouble. Um, and then also with one little Philip where they'll say, Yeah, these dumb Republicans, they can't help themselves. On the other side, you get, oh. This judge is obviously Trump is right. Listen to Trump make his uh, robust defense against the crooked justice system. And so it ends up not being about anybody else. It just is Trump, 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 Trump. And Trump able to portray himself as a victim to, right. his, to his own people. Um, next up, I this could have been my favorite item of the week, um, which was this Jonathan Martin column. Um <laughs> out this morning, the GOP is already clashing over Trump's VP pick. And the reason that I liked this piece so much, and it is about the opposition in Trump world to Trump choosing Nikki Haley as his vice president, was because, yes, there is a Republican primary campaign still underway. But to me, it seems quite obvious that that campaign is basically over um, and that Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. And so the real question in Republican politics right now is who will Trump pick as um, his vice president? Because Trump is, of course, term limited. He's going to be a lame duck president if he wins. And it will be important who he chooses as his vice president. And that's like the open question in this primary season now. And so there is 
enormous opposition. The col- the column is about the enormous opposition in MAGA world to Nikki Haley as uh, Trump's VP nominee. And the reason for that, which I think is quite valid, is that I think there would be a big Republican push to impeach Trump. Were, were there someone reasonable, plausible, sensible oh. in that VP slot, there would be a real push to impeach Trump and elevate the vice president. Part So part of me thinks there has to be someone crazier than Trump in that well, VP slot who would keep, I think, I think this is the way he's thinking about him. It, he, it, he needs, he needs an insurance policy. Safe. I do. Um, what do you think? Okay. Well, so part is uh, moving on already, right? So this is Trump, 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 Trump. Uh, forget about New Hampshire. Uh, let's talk about races over on to the next thing. Uh, uh, Judge Judy, forget you on to on to who will Trump pick? And part of that is reasonable, right? Nikki Haley has a very narrow. She has a lane, but it's a very narrow path. It's very narrow. The analogy I've tortured and abused many times since Monday is. She's two touchdowns behind, and there's five minutes left on the clock. She's got to score. She's got to recover the onside's kick, and she's got to score again. Unlikely, possible, 5%. Okay. I think her path is Trump six feet under. Ah, so, so there's that part. But then the other part is, in this speculation, Nikki Haley is the evidently correct choice for Donald Trump in the same way that Kamala Harris was the evidently correct choice for Joe Biden in the same way that Al, like sometimes it's obvious, right? Sometimes you're like, oh yeah, that's that's the person. One of my competitors from the race uh, who is comes from a different part of the party from me and is uh, um, demographically different from me. This is what you do. That's how uh, Barack Obama chose Joe Biden. Uh, that's how it often, maybe even usually works. So Nikki Haley would be correct. But in Trump's Mar-a-Lago universe of what, how do we take care of the true believers, they hate Nikki Haley like God hates sin. And they don't want her around for the reasons you describe, right? And I hadn't thought about that, but that's smart and also the sort of conspiratorial way that they think about it. Uh, And they also hate her because she is the embodiment of the old mainstream Republican Party. So then the question becomes who? And over here, we've got Elise Stefanik climbing the greasy pole. I have never seen anybody that wanted to be vice president as much as this this woman very obviously does, right? And there's a long record of people in that position ascending to the vice president. It's happened before. Um, and she's she wants it, right? Uh, and very clearly. And her star turn uh, uh, lambasting the presidents of these Ivy League schools and all that stuff. So she was a squish turned mega maga uh, and she has done everything she can to put herself in this position. She has com- she has competitors, right? Uh, her competitor, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, that's one, uh, and Christy Nome of uh, South Dakota, who are both more natural fits. There's there's less skepticism from MAGA world for folks who have a much better standing as true believers. 
Um, but then there's yes, and I don't think Republicans in the House and Senate would be rushing to elevate Kirstie Noem to the presidency. Nor certainly not Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now, of course, that doesn't do Trump much good uh, in the general election. I think of those, Noem maybe better than the others. I don't know. When you think about how do voters receive this person um, and how do they match up with Kamala Harris, but. People in Trump world uh, are thinking differently than ambitious women younger than Trump. They're thinking about old. They're thinking about boring. They're thinking about loyal. Uh, one name that has been batted around that I've heard from multiple people, Ben Carson, uh, as uh, which is just wild to me. Just a, just a, a totally wild idea to me. Uh, that Ben Carson, you would pair Ben Carson up in a debate with Kamala Harris is, to me, just amazing. Um, but I, I think for Trump's purposes, he wants to probably replicate what he had with Mike Pence until he sent a mob to the Capitol to try to kill him. Um, I think he's looking for uh, low, low energy. He's looking for not a person of personal ambition not a person who's going to try to upstage him, and as you say, not a threat for a good old 25th Amendment uh, uh, takedown. My money's on Kirsty Gnome. I think, I, I think um, Stefanik and Gnome are, are neck and neck in my book. I think um, Gnome is a safer bet for Trump to himself, uh, but Stefanik is more ambitious and she brings something else that Trump doesn't have. Nome is a reinforcement. Nome is like uh, Trump June. She she's Desantian in the sense of it's like him, but I'm younger and I have a cool haircut. Whereas with Stefanik, you're getting a little bit uh, like I think Stefanik. What Stefanik gets is the uh, admiration of people who think that she's lying. Um, I think that people who think Elise Stefanik's Elise Stefanik Bush administration veteran, uh, that Elise Stefanik is faking her MAGA in order to uh, have power. Those people uh, might, it's sort of the J.D. Vance conundrum. Uh, when was J.D. Vance uh, conning people? Was it when he was uh, an institutionalist uh, calling for the shoring up of, of civil society in America or when he was mega mega cuckoo puffs. Um, and it actually works if people think, well, he's just, this is just stuff they're saying to get ahead. But I think that the, the normal person is still under there, but I, I think Noam and Stefanik right now, but my, my hunch in the end is that Trump will settle on, uh, a, a person with less voltage uh, less ambition than either of them, in part for the reason you described. So who are your top two in that other category? Well, the hard part is, and this is why it sort of falls to Ben Carson, if you don't want a white dude, you have a relatively small universe. And if you don't want a um, ambitious person and you don't want and a young person who is nipping at your heels, uh, if if you don't want that, the universe of people is is relatively small, and it gets even smaller when they think about what Trump has done to Pence and to Bill Barr and to a host of people who thought that they were like, "Well, I can ride this lightning. I'm, you know, whatever. I'm I'm experienced. I'm a veteran. 
of politics and public life. I can I can figure out how to do it. Then they start thinking, how about the legal bills? How about the lynch mob? How, how about what happens? Uh, I, who, I forget who said it a long time ago, but it was Donald Trump strip mines the credibility of everybody around him. And as you think about, do I want to be Donald Trump's running mate? The, the universe of eligible people shrinks because is it something that you'd really want? Up next, Caitlin Collins of CNN got the L Magazine profile treatment. And I just wanted to offer a brief comment on this um, because she is one of the handful of people who have come from conservative media. Um, she came from the Daily Caller and gone on to major careers in the mainstream. The others are Robert Costa, who is now at CBS News, but spent time at the Washington Post before that. Tim Alberta, um, who was my colleague at National Review and went with me to Politico and is now at The Atlantic. Um, Betsy Swan, who was um, also my colleague at National Review, who went to the Daily Beast and is now at Politico. But you can count these people on one hand, um, more or less. And so few of these, uh, none of these people, actually. Um, I can't I can't really think of one. Um speaks with any kind of pride or gratitude about the time that they uh, spent in conservative media or gratitude um, to conservative media for launching their careers in media um, and launching them as as stars. And so I was struck by uh, Caitlin Collins's comment in Elle magazine about her time at the Daily Caller, where she was plucked um, because of her appearances in the um, White House press room, where the Daily Caller assigned her to cover the White House, and uh, CNN hired her from there. And her comment on that was, I didn't even know what the Daily Caller was or who Tucker Carlson was. Several months later, she was promoted to staff entertainment reporter. Um, it wasn't exactly how Collins anticipated starting her career, but she says, quote, I needed a job. Covering politics was still her goal and living in D.C., she said, was kind of a kind of osmosis. Um, that that was her entire well, comment on it. No, she said, I was at a conservative leaning outlet during the rise of Donald Trump. We could see the Republican Party transform from rejecting him to embracing him. Witnessing that in real time, quote, made me a better reporter, Collins adds. It was very illuminating. Um, and I my only thought was, you know, it would be nice um, to, to see from any of these people some expression of uh, of gratitude for getting a start in their career on the right, as opposed to I really had no idea where I was or who these people were. And and gee whiz, you know, then I ended up on CNN. I don't know. I think that that uh, to her, she she expressed you, you need not. She expressed appreciation, illuminating. She did, said. didn't come through to me. All right, but um, what is our next piece that you? Well, what makes here? what makes you different from everybody, Eliana? How are you different from everybody? Have you ever thought about um, that? Uh, from conservative reporters who went into the mainstream. <laughs> no, how are you different from eight billion people on Earth? Uh, Jim Van de Hai uh, proposed uh, in a pre-holiday, this is a while ago, uh, but how to make the most of your dinner party, Jim Van de Hai of Axios, uh, has, says that you there are uh, conversation starters. What does he say? Um, 
says he, I hate small talk. It feels phony, like wasted energy, and I'm terrible at it. But I love prying into people's lives to better understand what makes them tick. Uh, okay, below are some of my favorite questions, all designed to more fully know strangers or close friends. Uh, and here's his first one. There are 8 billion people on Earth. What's something you do more or better than 99.99% of them? Here's his answer. I typically tee this up by saying I eat more egg whites in a week than 99.99% of people. 36 egg whites, he says. Or as co-founder of three companies, Politico, Axios, Axios HQ, I have created more jobs than all but a one thousandth of a percent of humans. So there you go. There you have it. What kind of egg? What, what's your egg white count? Zero. <laughs> Okay. What about Mike Lindell? Yikes. Well, that's a pretty that's a pretty standard, I think, response for what about Mike Lindell? Uh Mike Lindell, Mike Lindell, this is a real a real journey into the bottom of the rabbit warren of right wing press, but bear bear with us uh briefly. Uh appearing on uh Steve Bannon's podcast. Um I think I've got this right. Um Mike Lindell alleged that Fox News had stopped airing his pillow commercials as a punishment for hiring Lou Dobbs. Now, I would think that would be punishment enough in itself. I would think that that, that would be that would be just just enough on its own. But um, and Lindell has his own platform, uh, Fringo, whatever. Uh, and so he put this out and there was a bunch of coverage that went around Rolling Stone and other places that were like, Fox is dumping Mike Lindell. So here it is. Fox is dumping Mike Lindell. It's over for my pillow, blah, 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 blah. And then Fox in the most wonderfully Fox evisceration of a critic says, uh, and this is talking to the daily beast. As soon as their account is paid, we would be happy to accept their advertising. <laughs> Uh, that wouldn't be the first time this is the Daily Beast. That wouldn't be the first time that Lindell has been dropped because he was unable to pay his bills. Lindell, who is currently facing a billion-dollar defamation lawsuit. Bop, 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 bop. So I just, uh, this was Fox PR at its best. It was a pitch-perfect response. Pitch-perfect response. Like, the story gets out, like, oh, my gosh, they're dropping Mike Lindell. And they're like, no, he just can't pay. Anytime he wants to pay, we'll, uh, we'll, put, his, we'll put his pillows, we'll fluff his pillows. Next up, we have the new Baltimore Sun owner insulting staff in a meeting and saying paper should mimic Fox 45. In a tense three-hour meeting with staff Tuesday afternoon, new Baltimore Sun owner David Smith told employees he has only read the paper four times in the past few months, insulted the quality of their journalism, and encouraged them to emulate a TV station owned by his broadcasting company. Smith, yeah, whose acquisition of the paper from investment firm Alden Global Capital was announced publicly Monday evening, told the staff he had not read newspapers for decades, according to several people who attended the meeting but were not authorized to speak publicly. Uh, Smith told the staff he paid nine figures, meaning at least $100 million. Thanks for that translation. Um, and my thought on this was... Um, Fine, if you want to insult the staff, but maybe indicate you've read it. <laughs> maybe indicate you've read the product before insulting them. So Sinclair, for those who do not know, uh, is a 
and I guess I should point out here, a competitor to my employers at Nexstar, uh, that Sinclair has has bought up a bunch of uh, local TV stations around the country, and they have tried to various success of having a national footprint uh, and pushing national content down on their locals. Uh, and it's been a, it's a, a figure of some controversy uh, and all of that stuff. So he buys the Baltimore Sun, the, the ailing Baltimore Sun. Now, on a personal level, this is great news for me because I can finally cancel my Baltimore Sun subscription. And the reason I need to cancel my Baltimore Sun subscription is that their email marketing, this is, pardon me for just this aside, is the worst, most wretched, un, unstoppable, unrelenting. I have unsubscribed from everything 500 times. I was only subscribing to the Baltimore Sun because occasionally I might want to read an article and also it's like support local journalism. Okay, that's fine. Baltimore needs a newspaper too. Um, and now I can unsubscribe and block the Baltimore sun <laughs> in my email and my long struggle to get less communication from the Baltimore sun can finally be concluded. Well, I'm with the new owner who has read the Baltimore sun four more times than I have in the past several months. I, the sun used to be, the sun used to be, there was a lot good in the sun. There was a lot good in the Baltimore sun. And it used to be a real good newspaper. Who, as a matter of fact, who is their media critic? They had a great. Um, I know exactly who you're talking about. Um, David Zerowick. Zerowick. Yeah. And so they had good media criticism. I mean, this is H.L. Mencken's old newspaper. Like the Baltimore Sun, I would put in the same category as the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Um, the we could we can think of others from medium-sized cities around the country, the Boston Globe, um, the Miami Herald, uh, uh that the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette that once were great newspapers and now many of them, and it looks like what will happen to the Baltimore Sun is what happened to the Cleveland Plain Dealer, which is it will get scraped out, hollowed down, uh, and replaced with meh content. I don't know how heavily leveraged the $100 million purchase was. I'm going to guess heavily. Um, I'm going to guess that this is uh, paid out over time. Um, and maybe there's value in having that nameplate for uh, Sinclair that they can they can get some. Um, and this is what he's saying that he wants is more video con- more look local TV news. There's a lot good to be said about local TV news. You want to know how, what the weather's going to be. You want to know what the traffic's going to be. You want to know whether the schools are closed and all that stuff. It's good. It's also good. By the way, I know this is. Uh, I'm not supposed to say this. It's good for crime news. Uh, it's good to know uh, things that are happening right now because TV is really good at covering live news. That's what that's TV's greatest gift. But local TV doesn't do what the Baltimore Sun did. And I would imagine that the Baltimore Sun will go the way of the Cleveland Plantin dealer, which is it will get hollowed out, turned into a husk of its former self uh, and have a newsroom staff of, you know, 10 people and see you later. Chris, I wanted to talk about this briefly, which was um, yesterday's Wall Street Journal exclusive on the Chinese lab that mapped the coronavirus two weeks uh, before Beijing told the world. And this was a scoop from um, the Congressional Investigative Committee 
by Warren Strobel in the journal, and he writes that Chinese researchers isolated and mapped the virus that causes COVID-19 in late December 2019, at least two weeks before Beijing revealed the details of the deadly virus to the world, congressional investigators said, raising questions anew about what China knew in the pandemic's crucial early days. Documents obtained from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services by a House committee and reviewed by the Wall Street Journal show that a Chinese researcher in Beijing uploaded a nearly complete sequence of the virus's structure to a U.S. government-run database on December 28, 2019. Chinese officials at that time were still publicly describing the disease outbreak in Wuhan, China, as a viral pneumonia of unknown cause and had yet to close the Huanan Seafood Wholesale Market, site of one of the initial COVID-19 outbreaks. China only shared the virus sequence with the World Health Organization on January 11, 2020, um, according to U.S. government timelines of the pandemic. The new information doesn't shed light on the debate over whether COVID emerged from an infected animal or a lab leak, but it suggests that the world still doesn't have a full accounting of the pandemic's origin. And he notes that the extra two weeks could have proved crucial in helping the international medical community pinpoint how COVID-19 spread, develop medical defenses, and get started on an eventual vaccine, et cetera, et cetera. And I just thought this was a great report. The journal's obviously staying on top of this story and continuing to evince how secretive and nefarious China has been. Those guys may not be you know, on the we're, level. We're years removed from this, but good for them for staying on top of well, the story. Well, and it's a, it's a great juxtaposition with uh, the Sinclair um, Baltimore Sun. Who's going to do that reporting? And the Wall Street Journal does that reporting. The New York Times does that reporting. The Washington Post does some of that reporting. But it's expensive. It's time consuming. And by the way, it doesn't always generate a bunch of clicks, right? Having good investigators working hard on stories over the long term, right? So the journal has been on this story for the long term. And it's expensive and it is not uh, does not give you fast turnaround. And that's what newspapers can do. And that's what good news organizations can do. And those things are expensive <clears throat> and they do not. Uh, one of the things that uh, the Sinclair guy said in the newsroom apparently was, go make me some money. And I'm all fine. It, 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 it's good to make a profit. It's good to make a profit. But it's hard to make a profit doing good journalism, but you ought to do it anyway. Chris, when we were batting these uh, stories around, I um, I said jokingly in in our text chain, Neil Gorsuch, it's your turn because yeah, there were yeah. a couple stories um, this week targeting Neil Gorsuch. Whereas for the past year, we've gotten one story after another about Clarence Thomas's various scandals. Well, uh, now the press is on to Neil Gorsuch. And why do they care? They care, and Slate is very exactly. good. Slate is very good when you want to say, what is the conventional wisdom of a certain part of the American left? And so there, was, there were oral arguments uh, Wednesday around the, uh, the, the Chevron doctrine, the, uh, basically the deference that since the, I guess that was the Rehnquist court, no, probably the Burger Court long, long ago, um, 40, uh, 40 years ago, uh, in which the Supreme Court said, look, judges can't 
determine facts in arguments around regulatory cases. So we're going to defer. We're going to say that basically the the um, the deference belongs to federal agencies and the expertise that they bring to bear. So if you're suing because of how an agency is regulating you or your business or your enterprise, essentially, and I know legal people are going to say that I don't understand, or this is an unfair description, but basically the nod just goes to what the agency says. So the agency says that this is what the science is. These are the facts of the case. This is, this, this is the correct um, expert determination. That's just stands and it, it isn't to be argued. And when it was originally put in place, <clears throat> many conservatives, uh, including at the time Antonin Scalia and others, thought, well, this is good because the Reagan administration will be able to put forward its doctrines. It will be able to implement its things. Uh, and instead of the court, instead of the courts coming in and making its own findings, they'll defer to the agencies. And that was back in the time when uh, the presidency was Republican and the legislature was Democratic. And this was seen as a tool of executive power on the premise that the presidency was more Republican than not. As the balance of power has shifted and the presidency has been more Democratic or more up for grabs and the legislative branch has become more Republican, conservatives have decided that they actually want to re-empower the legislative branch to do the work and take power away from unelected bureaucrats in these agencies. So Slate very conveniently sums it up this way. Headline, the Supreme Court is about to seize way more power from Democratic presidents. What? Wait, what? What is it? What is it going to do, Slate? How is it going to do that? Um, and proceeds to go on to say that this is really actually bad for Democrats because now they won't be able to keep lead out of children's milk and, you know, whatever, that uh, that uh, cookies makery will be mandated for all classrooms <laughs> and nothing will be able to stop the reign of terror of vanilla scented pets. Well, it's also the case that the run of the mill bureaucrat that staffs these agencies, the, the politics of such people um, in the modern era tends to be left to far left. And as a result, you know, deferring to the expertise of the bureaucrats in these agencies results in handing power to left and far left people. So yeah, there's the, it, the it is stripping power from the left, um, not necessarily stripping power from Democratic presidents. Bef before but this will bef be before the deep state, uh, before Mike Lindell's deep state. Um, the understanding of the term deep state was about these bureaucrats, right? That essentially new presidents- And that is still, frankly, I think when you and I would talk about the deep state, that is what we're referring to, is the unelected bureaucrats whose politics are further to the left than those of the average American. The administrative state has, and look, it's been 100 years essentially where we've had stable civil service, uh, 110 years, stable civil service in these United States. Actually going all the way back, uh, to Chester A. Arthur, uh, the victor uh, of the spoils system, the Elise Stefanik of his day, uh, climbed to the very top. And then after the assassination of Garfield by a deranged office seeker, 
uh, and I give him credit, his that his heart was changed, but also the backlash against patronage led to the institution of a real civil service. Over the next 150 years, 130 years, what evolved is that there are, the federal government has 2 million civilian employees, and most of them, all but 50,000 or so, are civil servants. And there is a rudder to the federal government that does not turn based on who the people elect. And some of that is necessary because you have to have continuity. But on the other hand, there is this bureaucratic state, this deep state that pursues policies and directions uh, without regard to what the results of elections were and what the wishes of elected officials are. And frankly, that often works to thwart um, the elected presidents, whether they are Democrats or Republicans. And we're seeing it play out right now with Joe Biden's um, policies on Israel, where um, actually this big snowstorm that we had in D.C. thwarted the efforts of um, it was supposed to be hundreds of um, staffers and federal agencies who wanted to stage a, a strike or a walkout. They weren't going to show up to work um, on Tuesday, I believe, um, to protest the uh, the elected presidents pro-Israel, what they perceive as his, you know, overly pro-Israel policy. And, you know, doing that is just totally antithetical to the way that our government is supposed to work. Um, they are paid to carry out the president's policy. Yep, that's right. And 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 finding a new balance here where the legislature make Congress great again. This is what I say. Make Congress great again. It's not one thing or the other. You have it's not that you have no administrative state or a all-encompassing python of an administrative state, but we have to re we have to rebalance things so that the Congress that the will of the Congress and that the Article 1 power of Congress is clear uh, and that it it works. And so this is how this is going. Now, what you didn't know, how about this too? That the bureaucrats Unlike the people, many of the people who are there now and that these staffers of the White House properly understand their role, which is to execute the policies as articulated by the elected officials of the American people, not to articulate their own policies Well, this and is another... not show up to work if they disagree with the policies um, articulated by the elected representatives. An and another good reason not to elect presidents who are either deranged or extraordinarily elderly. Uh, another, another good reason to have competent, capable, steady leaders uh, that can execute uh, their wishes and are not sulking around the White House in a bathrobe uh, or being led by the hand. Uh, it would be good to have uh, a vibrant, competent uh, leader in the White House. That would be helpful. Chris, that brings us to our sports section. No, you have to talk about Neil Gorsuch's mother. You have to you have to pay oh, off. Oh, oh. You have to pay I'm it remiss. off. I am remiss. CNN has a piece. Headline, you know, right down the middle. No bias here. Neil Gorsuch has a grudge against federal agencies, period. He holds <laughs> their fate in his hands. Does he? 
Business groups and conservative activists, including a network founded by Charles Koch helping to finance the challenge, say Chevron deference has led to an uncontrolled bureaucracy. The federal government, backed by public health, labor, and environmental advocates, stresses the importance of agency expertise, such as in scientific and medical fields, and the value of uniform nationwide rules. Such conflicts have gotten hotter since the Supreme Court conservative supermajority coalesced in 2020 and demonstrated a desire to curtail agency power across the board. Gorsuch has led calls on the court for reversal of a 1984 Supreme Court decision that gives federal agencies considerable regulatory latitude and that coincidentally traces to his mother's tenure. Dun, dun, Supreme- dun. Exactly. Now, what's the tie to his mother? The, okay. Neil Gorsuch's mother was the former head of the Environmental Protection Agency under Ronald Reagan. And the premise of this piece, so Neil Gorsuch has Neil Gorsuch has some real libertarian vibes, right? He's got some real libertarian vibes. He is um where if you look at the the conservatives on the court, uh you have Roberts the moderate, you have Roberts the politically looking to to preserve the power of the court and looking to do that. Um, you have Alito and you have uh, Clarence Thomas now who are more in the, well, maybe state power is good um, if you if if it's if it's hurting the people we don't like and it's helping the people we do like. They're a little they're over on the more. Um, uh, I don't know. MAGA is not right, but sort of a more nationalistic, uh, muscular kind of right wingism. Uh, and then you've got uh, Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett as more on the small government, less government, more libertarian view of limiting the, the power and role of the government. And that's Neil Gorsuch is clear on this. The premise of the CNN piece, however, is the way that he got that way was because he's mad about what happened to his mom. Chris, that brings us to our style section. I must say, fortunately or unfortunately, this part really hinges on a video um, where Dick Morris, the former Clinton polling poobah, was on Newsmax in a suit talking about politics and in the background, an underwear clad man walked through the room. Now, TMZ revealed... The guy was wearing like a wife beater top and a and you spouse know, beater. Underwear. Don't be gendered. Okay. Don't be gendered. Okay. And TMZ came in to reveal that the man was his wife's caretaker. Dick and- Morris's interview on Newsmax went viral after a man wearing only underwear wandered into his <laughs> shot without any explanation. But TMZ has an answer on what the deal was. In case you missed it, and this is great. The well-respected political consultant or commentator, uh, maybe, 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 uh, was in the middle of a conversation about the Iowa caucus on Rob Schmidt tonight when the door behind him opened and a man nearly naked from the waist down entered. DM didn't miss a beat, continuing his convo with the other guests, but it left fans and people on social media very confused. Questions and theories, and yes, more than a few less than tasteful jokes popped up all over X in the aftermath. 
In terms of who this underwear photo bomber is, Dick tells TMZ the man walking into the shot is actually his wife, Eileen McGann's caretaker, who lives with the couple. So, wow. Just. I'm not sure I would want uh, that gentleman caring for my wife. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what the situation is, but the new style, hot new style trend for 2024 is underwear photo bombing. Get ready. Chris, that brings us to our obsessions of the week. Where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads. And mine were two wonderful columns on the World Economic Forum in Davos, where the titans of law and business and think tankery get together every year in the snow-capped mountains of Switzerland. And I thought there were just two really great pieces about it. One was in the Wall Street Journal by Walter Russell Mead. The headline was The Humiliation of the Davos Man. And the other was in Politico by John Harris, Why the Davos Smart Set Sounds Dumb. And in the first... Uh, Walter Russell Mead writes, the real scandal of Davos isn't that it's taking over the world. It's that it's failing. The Davos agenda, a global security order, an integrated world economy and progress toward objectives, including decarbonization, gender equality and the abolition of dire poverty is controversial in some quarters and on some points, but is neither secret nor particularly nefarious. But far from imposing this agenda on a captive world, the Davos elites are wringing their hands as the dream slowly dies. And the column is basically about the fecklessness and ineffectiveness of these people. And John Harris's piece, Why the Davos Smart Set Sounds Dumb, is about how there aren't any real brilliant insights coming from all of the panels. These folks go and there are panels during the day and raging parties at night. And Harris writes, here's what they don't have, most of them, any more than you do, original or penetrating insights into the large political currents buffeting the United States and the world. It's not that the observations and arguments are notably dumb, though it is rare to hear something arrestingly smart. The signature of most conversations about current events is how emphatically commonplace they are. And I thought those were wonderful takeaways um, from an event that I have never attended and probably never will. The World Economic Forum, uh, the term, I believe it was Samuel Huntington uh, who coined the term Davos man. And I look forward to being corrected in the reader mail. But the idea was that in at the turn of the century, the in the sort of um, end of history, uh, that we that we were moving into this a world in which a, a educated global elite would steer events, and we saw this all play out uh, in the Panic of two thousand eight and the subsequent recession. And we're all talking about what's Germany going to do with Italy's bonds and blah, blah and and all of this stuff. And this was also uh, present in uh, the climate summits that were held, and the idea that we were on the one yard line of a global consensus among developed nations about how to proceed. What killed it, you ask? History, humans, human nature, uh, Russia, China, Brazil, India, uh, developing nations 
do not have the same interests as rich and established Western nations. They want different things. And they will continue to upset the world order to try to gain advantage for themselves. And it doesn't end. The 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 Mobius strip the of human nature and history goes on. We're not able to work their will. Right. As they thought they would be. Oh hubris. Oh hubris. Chris, what is your obsession? Okay. I love I love when they do this. I love when they do this. Uh New York Times. Uh, Jesse McKinley writing in the New York Times headline, hitmen are easy to find in the movies. Real life is another story. Wait, what? Are you saying it's hard to find a hitman? I thought that if you just walked out to any corner bar and say, hey, who wants to murder someone for me? And it was super easy. Uh, here's the lead. It's a scene as old as celluloid, a shadowy figure named Luca Brasi or John Wick or Barry Berkman lurking in the darkness, outfitted with sinister intent and a nifty weapon, effortlessly committing a murder for cash, animus, or cold political calculations. Who Who is he writing to? Who Who are the people who think that that's true? And here's the more interesting part, which is, and he gives away the story in this paragraph. Only about half of all murders in the United States are cleared or solved each year, according to the FBI, making it difficult to say definitively how many people are killed specifically by hitmen. Do you know why the hitmen, who are quite real, by the way, they're quite real, you know why they get away with it? You know why half of, I don't know what percentage of the 50% of unsolved murders are carried out uh, by professional killers or people who are compensated? Because they're killing criminals. They're killing people who have gotten on the wrong side of other criminals, and they're being killed for it. And I have covered plenty of mob hits. I have covered plenty of that stuff. And guess what? Guys who work for organized crime or semi-organized crime organizations can go to some town, kill somebody uh, who's behind in their payments on uh, debt or drugs or whatever, and... Where does the trail go? It doesn't go anywhere. The crimes that do get solved are because you know who's most likely to kill you? Someone you know. You that most of the most of the murders overwhelmingly that we solve are because it was a family member, it was a relative, it was a friend, it was an associate, it was a crime of passion, it was a crime of resentment. Just watch Dateline. So that's that part. But this other part, so this the idea in this story, it's dispelling a myth that hitmen are are readily hireable. I, I don't think anybody thought that hitmen are regularly hireable. And then tries to discount that idea by saying, oh yeah, but about half of the murders are committed by hitmen. Uh, or about, we don't know who killed half of the people, but, you know, and maybe some of them were hitmen, but moving on, it's not like John Wick. Thanks for the update. Chris, that brings us to my favorite time of the week, which is reader mail. And this is a great letter from Brian B. in Virginia. He writes, congratulations on your continued success. The podcast is entertaining, smart, and fair. I hope more continue to find it and benefit from listening to it. Generally, about the Claudine Gay Harvard media coverage, I'm surprised that there has been, was, little to no mention of the ouster of Stanford's president last year. It seems analogous, but even if one thinks it isn't, seems relevant enough for reporters to at least mention and discuss it in the context of recent developments. 
i.e. if he had to resign, why shouldn't Gay have to? What do you think? As I said, surprise this angle didn't seem to receive media attention as it reported on the gay plagiarism story. I have a couple of thoughts on this. The first is that there was a real political angle to Gay's resignation um, in a couple of in a couple of ways. The first is that it was directly downstream of her congressional testimony where it was Gay, who is obviously a committed Democrat, um, facing off against a Republican, Elise Stefanik, and clearly losing that battle. And second, that she was um, a vocal proponent of DEI, the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. She had made that a central pillar of her um, presidency. And so bringing her down, I think, became for conservatives part of a battle against DEI in a way that bringing down the Stanford president just wasn't. Um, he was a, and he was brought down not for political missteps, i.e. the handling of anti-Semitism in the context of a larger positioning on the Israel-Hamas war, but for research misconduct. Like there was a political valence to the Harvard, Claudine Gay thing that there wasn't with Stanford. The second thing I would say was that I think a lot of stories have actually mentioned this, um, though definitely far down in the B matter, in that there are several major universities now doing presidential searches. You got that uh, right. University of Pennsylvania, Harvard, Yale, and Stanford are all now engaged in searches for new presidents. And that on the whole, apart from Harvard, um, the fact that all of these major universities and research institutions are leaderless at the moment um, and that their presidents are stepping down has raised questions about the substance, more morality, intellectual, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of intellectual substance mm -hmm. of the leaders of these elite intellectual institutions of American life. And so I do think Stanford has been mentioned um, in that context, but certainly, you know, Harvard is Harvard and Harvard, Penn, and MIT were bundled together because they came in the context of the university response to anti-Semitism, and they were the, the three leaders were together at that hearing. Well, Brian B., I will um, only say- Do you say, have other thoughts, Chris? Brian, Brian B., we talked about it. You, We talked about the comparisons, and one of the other, to, to Eliana's point, is if you bring up the Stanford president, you're undercutting an argument that this is racially motivated and political reprisal, right? So if you talk about the Stanford president and you say, well, yeah, it happened to that white dude too, then you're undercutting your argument. So uh, I would say good reporters, I'm sure did, include, this is a Andrew Sullivan watch, uh, a to be sure paragraph, right? So if you're writing about this, and we actually had a piece from somebody that failed to discuss, we even made a, we even put a to be sure alert on a piece that went through the whole thing and never said, yeah, but also there were, there was this guy and there was that guy and sometimes it happens. Uh, so I think these were uh, in many cases a failure to d disclose against interest. Chris, that brings us to your favorite time of the week. 
when I am forced to say something nice, but please lead by example. Well, Braveheart no more, uh, but this is adorable. Uh, this is from the Scottish, uh, Scottish television um, for how do we cope? with um, winter weather and icy uh, icy conditions. Uh, the National Health Service Scotland uh, is urging people to, quote, walk like a penguin during snowy and icy weather conditions this fall. Health experts claim that walking like birds can help with stability to prevent injuries from slipping and falling on ice. A number of yellow weather warnings have been issued for parts of Scotland with freezing conditions leading to slippery pavements and roads. NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde volunteers have demonstrated the method outside the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital, which starts with bending slightly and keeping the knees loose. The top tips include pointing out, pointing the feet out slightly, extending the arms to the sides before walking with a flat-footed fashion. Members of the public are being urged to take short steps and keep their center of gravity over their feet. And you can see the video of these adorable Scottish ladies walking like penguins to stay safe. Chris, my favorite going back to our higher education topic, mm -hmm. was a wonderful Harvey Mansfield, a longtime professor at Harvard, op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. And the headline of that piece was, Who's Holding Up the Ivory Tower? Liberals Want Academia to Reflect Society, While Conservatives Know It Has to Rise Above Society. And there was a great paragraph in it where he writes, the university's political acumen was tested. It consulted lawyers, apparently all Democrats, who failed to grasp that their advice should be more for the university not to sound like a lawyer. It failed to consult Republicans in Congress who are Harvard graduates, and there are more of them than you would think. It did nothing to propitiate New York Rep. Elise Stefanik, Harvard class of 2006, whom it ousted in January 2021 from an advisory committee of the Harvard Institute of Politics for having endorsed Donald Trump's 2020 objection to the... Uh, for having endorsed Donald Trump's objection to the 2020 presidential election count. However mendacious Mr. Trump is, this is the sort of gratuitous insult politicians avoid. It isn't likely Ms. Stefanik had forgotten about it when she addressed Ms. Gay in the congressional hearing. And the point he makes is essentially in this, you know, in this paragraph is that Harvard had gone out of its way to alienate the Republicans who then helped to orchestrate the downfall of its president. And all of these people, you know, our Supreme Court justices, our university leaders, they have to play politics. And they did a very bad job in this case. Well, that is all the time we have for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com and sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches.